Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have such a fascinating and exciting show for you this evening. Kevin LaRosa is here with us to talk about his film experience in aerial coordination for Hollywood and uh, the uh, stunt flying and so many things that go on with his work uh, in, in the TV and film industry and commercial industry. Before we get started, just a few things as always. Well, first of all, I would just like to pass along uh, things. I, I love this time of year when we're kind of transitioning into fall, especially for us in, in the New England area where where we're based outside of Boston because you get some really fun events and socialflight.com and the free social flight mobile apps for Apple and Android devices have all of these events for you to get out there and fly. And I always like to, to get out there and look at a few of the things happening around before I uh, join the show here on social flight live. And one that I'm going to share with you right now, uh, actually two is if you do a search on the word pumpkin, this time of year in October, you come up with pumpkin drops that are happening. And I'll tell you, um, only in general aviation would you go out there and find people that have chosen to go out this time of year, uh, go flying and um, drop some pumpkins on targets from their aircraft. <laughs> so it looks like a heck of a lot of fun. And um, be sure to go out and check that out in Social Flight. There's just there's just a ton of super cool things uh, out there going on. And in addition to that, we're also running our Fly to Win Challenge, where you can win prizes. So all you need to do is get out there, fly, get points, get prizes. It's uh, it is very, very cool. In addition, also, Social Flight Live is now a podcast. And so you can listen to this show as well as past shows on your favorite podcast uh, channel as well. And we have our FAA learning system where we issue wings and AMT credits for a whole bunch of courses that are out there. If you open up Social Flight and you go look for the FAA credits uh, in the menu, you click on that. And it'll just have all sorts of courses so that you can get credit. And even for those of you that are AMPs with IA, with the inspection authorization, that need eight hours of continuing education per year for that renewal option, uh, we have those courses. You can go out there from your comfort of your home on demand whenever you want, and it'll print out the certificates that you need for your IA renewal. Now, tonight's broadcast is brought to you by Bose. I actually met Kevin. He is here tonight because of the fact that we met at the Bose booth at AirVenture. And uh, I know that he's a huge fan of Bose as well and uh, their A20, as well as their ProFlight Series 2, which I'm pretty sure my friend Brian Schiff, if he's not out there uh, watching the show, is probably uh, uh, out there in the flight levels flying with one of those right now. So shout out to him for that. Now, I'd like to begin the show and talk to you a little bit about tonight's guest. Uh, Kevin LaRosa is Hollywood's most sought after pilot and aerial coordinator. That's simply the best way to put it. He is, uh, his logbook and his type ratings include nearly everything that you can imagine seeing on the silver screen from helicopters to piston jets, uh, piston aircraft to jets to military aircraft, even drones. His film credits include an almost absurdly long list of hit movies, including Iron Man, The Avengers, Transformers, and most recently, for many of you, if you've gone and if you've seen Top Gun Maverick, a lot of those scenes, all of those scenes really are the, the work of Kevin's. And we wouldn't have a movie that is as impactful as it is without his work. His latest film, Devotion, tells the harrowing true story of two elite U.S. Navy fighter pilots during the Korean War. I am going to bring Kevin on the line to join us now. And please help me welcome to Social Flight Live, Kevin LaRosa. How are you doing, Kevin? Good, Jeff. Thanks for having me on here. Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule 
I, I really do appreciate it. And I, I have to start with this so that everyone uh, really understands uh, how, uh, how, how lucky we are to have you here with us tonight. Because uh, when it comes to your credits, it's, it's like going through the hits on Netflix. And I try to think, how can I show something that shows what the, some of the things you've worked on? And th these are just, this is literally what it looks like to scroll through Kevin's page of credits to get there. And uh, if, if there's a movie you love, it's probably on this screen. So I just wanted to start off with that one. So welcome to the show, Kevin. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's, uh, it's awesome to be on Social Play Live. This is great. So tell me the story about uh, you. You came into this through your family, through your father. And I, I tell me what that was like, because this is truly a family business. And, and it, it, it just must be a fascinating uh, youth that you had. Yeah, I mean, if you could imagine uh, growing up in a house as a little boy with your dad being a Hollywood stunt pilot, it's uh, it's definitely easy for young ones to get the aviation bug when we see how cool it is and we smell jet fuel and ab gas burning. But when it's your dad up there doing that stuff and you see him on the big screen on television, you're kind of just blown away. Uh, so my dad became my idol and my hero from a young age and also my mentor throughout my career. Um, and that, that just happened naturally. And, and the cool thing is, is I knew what I wanted to do since I've been a little boy. I wanted one thing only, one track mind. I wanted to be an aerial coordinator, wanted to be a motion picture pilot, just like my dad. How wonderful that must be to have that be such a, such a linear path and have such connection with your father having to do with that. It's pretty awesome. I mean, we, I just remember growing up and, and spending weekends and weekdays after school at the airport and helping him change tires or oil changes on airplanes and cleaning windshields. And I mean, my first job was working for him, emptying the trash cans at his business and doing stuff like that. I couldn't even touch an airplane until I earned it. Uh, and then when I got to clean an airplane, I thought that was the coolest thing in the world, um, <laughs> let alone fly one. So that's, uh, it was awesome. Was was some of it just kind of, did it get normalized a little bit from just being around it so much when you were young? I mean, I, I remember my, my perspective, you know, I didn't come from any aviation background, but my, my boys, Jake and Ben were used to it from, from very early on. And I remember one day we had to drive somewhere that was like four hours away. And they looked at me when they were probably six years old and their eyes were open huge. And they said, I didn't know, do cars go that far? They had no idea. So was this normalized for you? <laughs> Uh, it was. It's it's interesting. I look back on it now. I mean, my dad also had Warbirds when I was growing up and he had a P-51 Mustang, a D model, and it was beautiful. And I remember polishing that thing as a kid all the time. Uh, but we used to fly in it almost every weekend. We'd go get a burger. We'd take it to an air show. And, and and we don't have that airplane anymore. But I look back on it now as a 36-year-old man. And I go, I can't believe I was cruising around with my dad and his Mustang. And back then it was an airplane, right? It was just, It was cool and everyone loved it. But I didn't realize how special and unique it was. So you're right. It does kind of normalize. But I think as you get older, you start appreciating those moments and you remember back of what you had. And you definitely have a newfound appreciation for what you had and what you have now. Wow. What, what was it like to, to train so that you could come up to speed to, to start doing the types of things that your dad was doing in his business? Yeah, to, to make it not such a long story, it was kind of this perfect uh this perfect storm of mixing production set experience with aviation. Uh, I was just super lucky to be able to go out on film sets with my dad and then eventually get enough experience on set to become his ground safety guy. Now that's just somebody that holds a radio standing next to the director, or the DP, and you're looking at the monitor and my dad might be flying a shot with a downlink so we can see a live image or maybe he's on camera. And I became the guy that helped him fly on camera, be in the right spot at the right time, help relaying the, the action cues and when to turn or, you know, what to do. And that gave me what we call set etiquette, gave me my set experience. I learned a lot about the, how productions are structured and the personnel, the leadership. Well, all that time while doing that on the ground, I was flying. Um, now, I had very strict parents, and my dad, my dad wanted me to get great grades. I couldn't touch an aircraft unless I had near straight A's. Uh, and uh, when I was finally allowed to do that, um, I, I hit the books hard. I mean, I started in 172s. My first job was flying traffic watch, building time every day in the L.A. basin. 
uh, and then from there into helicopters and building time flying bank runs, uh, which is we used to, you know, helicopters flying checks and stuff like that. Now everything's electronic. Um, so they just had all these really cool jobs uh, to build experience. But the best thing that he ever did for me, and I love sharing this because at the time this was horrible. I didn't want to do it. Um, but as a teenager, 17 years old, knowing exactly what I wanted to do, and I was already doing it. I was on set with my dad. So this is awesome. He basically pulled me aside one day and said, hey, listen, if you ever want to be what I am, if you ever want to do what I do and you want to be respected by your peers and colleagues, you're going to have to leave the industry. You're going to have to stop doing it. And you're going to have to go become an aviator, a real pilot, real jobs, and make your own mistakes, uh, learn your own lessons. And then one day you'll have the experience, forgetting about how many hours that is, you'll just know in your heart when you feel like you're qualified and you feel like you're ready to come back to the film industry. Um, and that's hard to do, right? You're already kind of working in it. And I hated that advice at the time, but I love it now because what it allowed me to do, I went and I did jet charter for a number of years and I got hooked up with a company called Wolf Aviation who did jet camera photography. That's how I got my jet experience. Um, I flew for a company called Helen Aviation who I'm partnered with today actually. Uh, and I built time flying news helicopters and, and charter helicopters and medical helicopters and all of those things were so useful to me. Uh, and I did that very thing. I made mistakes, I became my own aviator. I learned what I liked, what I didn't like, my own processes. And I think at the age of 26, I remember calling him. I just ran out of enough days to work in the movie industry on my off time, vacation days or whatever. And I said, dad, I think it's time. I think I'm ready. I feel ready. And he said, well, you'll know, you'll know better than anybody. And I made that leap of faith that I came back in full time 10 years ago at the age of 26 uh, and uh, never looked back. But it was a great experience. What a wonderful story. I mean, that seems like you, you couldn't write it better in terms of how to come into an expertise that, that your father's blazed the path for and yet earn the respect, uh, not just the experience, but the respect of the people that you're going to end up working for, both as coworkers and as customers. That, I mean, that sounds like you basically, uh, through his encouragement, were able to go out there and come back with your own resume so that there was no thing about it just being his son. Exactly right. I don't, I don't think I would have been where I am today without that. Wow. Was there a time uh, after you came back, as you started kind of building on what you'd learned when you were younger, that you started to then be able to kind of find yourself uh, with your way of doing things, not just procedurally, but a lot of what you do is art. And, and it is really just based not just on the technical aspect of the shots, but, but what's going to make a good movie or what's going to make a good commercial or, or something like that. Is there something you remember about kind of starting to do that? Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a more profound example of that that just sort of fits in everything aviation it actually fits in just everyday life. But I think people can relate to this. Uh, one piece of information my dad gave me, I think I was probably 20 years old when I, I became an SIC doing charter work in Learjets. And, and he said, hey, bud, listen, you're going to fly with a lot of different people. He knew I was going to be a charter pilot. And I just had to upgrade and be a captain. But I was going to go through lots of different captains and co-pilots. And he said, here's what your job is. Fly with as many people as you can. And you're going to see people do things. And you're going to go, wow, that's such a good idea. Well, that's a, such a cool little trick. Or I didn't know I can do that. Or, man, that's something that I want to adopt into my own methodology of how I do whatever it is, fuel burn calculations or whatever. And he says, take those things and make them part of what you do. And he says, then you're going to see a lot of things you don't like, some things you can't stand, some things that make you cringe. And those are the things you, you don't do. You take those as an example and you don't do those again. Um, and then in doing all of that, you will become your own aviator. Mm -hmm. So that actually works in any business, any life. Uh, and what it means to me is that you can be taught something or you can learn something from watching just about anybody. Um, doesn't matter how many hours you have, uh, how good you think you are. Uh, I love flying with, with people because you learn something possibly better than you do it or a cool little trick, or you look at something, you go, maybe I wouldn't do it that way. That's all perfect. That's what makes us our own pilot. That's that's a great point. I like that. And that is you're right in that that is something you could apply to pretty much any background, career or, or skill that makes a lot of sense. Um, 
help people understand what, when we say, I mean, you're mostly described, if, if you're going to sum it up right, as aerial coordinator is one of the biggest terms, I think, when people are describing you. Help me understand what that means, what that, what, what roles that entails on a production. Sure. Um, a lot of people use that term aerial coordinator uh, and it could, it could mean a different host of different things, really. The way I think of an aerial coordinator, and I kind of got this from my dad, that's an individual. <clears throat> it's like if there's a, if there's water work on a movie, you hire a water coordinator or a Marine coordinator. If there's a fight scene in a movie, you're going to hire a stunt coordinator or a, a fight sequence coordinator. So when there's a aviation sequence in a movie or TV show or anything, Hiring an aerial coordinator means you're bringing in somebody who is not only going to be responsible for making sure that it's done safely, most importantly, but that we're not going to break any FARs. We're not going to uh, uh, get in the way of any normal flight operations in that area. Um, it means you're going to hire somebody who's going to take storyboards and help make them reality. Because a lot of times storyboards are generated little cartoons or previs, little animated cartoons about what a director wants to see out of an aviation sequence. And sometimes they're not possible. Sometimes they are, or sometimes we give them better ideas, but either way, an aerial coordinator to me is the person they hire to bring in the team, to bring in the assets that's needed for that sequence and to handle everything from start to finish. That's an aerial coordinator. Um, what I just said, the most important thing in that sequence or, or what I just said is, is the word team. Um, and I am literally nothing without the team. Um, at the truest sense, when I'm flying, all I am is a, is a dolly pilot. I'm moving a camera dolly around the sky. My job is to put the camera gimbal in the right spot so that the aerial DP, that's the camera operator, can operate it. So that's my job, but I can't do anything unless he does his job. And then there's the crew chiefs and the technicians. So the team is really what makes us successful. And I'm extremely fortunate to get to work with incredible individuals uh, it, you know, if it's a small sequence in a movie, maybe there's four of us or three of us. If it's a movie like Top Gun Maverick, we might have 40 people or a devotion, 50 people on an aerial team that are meant to fly those aircraft, maintain them, schedule them, all that type of thing. So team is the biggest thing. I think an aerial coordinator, it's much more than just being an individual. It's having, it's having that support. Wow. That's, that's really fascinating. I mean, it, it sounds like it, it's, it encompasses pretty much everything that has to do with the aviation aspect of of that flying from the concept stage of the movie in many cases like you said storyboarding all the way through that that execution and it's really interesting too i'm i'm issued uh, a waiver from the faa uh that tells me certain provisions to allow me to do movie work for motion picture and television and this is all stuff that's been learned over the last 50 years uh, with Hollywood aviation or aircraft working in the movie business. I also have what's called a movie manual. And the movie manual is, is like my Bible. It says everything in there about what we need to have. It says how thick the ropes need to be. If I have somebody hanging under a helicopter, it says how we do parachute or airplane transfers. It says, you know, my minimum experience requirements for people that are flying aircraft for me and how we work with all state municipalities and FAA. So that's our Bible for how we do our work. Um, and that's approved by the FAA or accepted by the FAA. And then we're also issued a waiver because sometimes we have to waive certain FARs. As long as we can prove that we're maintaining safety for the general public, we can then invoke our waiver and do certain things like lower than standard altitudes or maneuvering. Is, is that moving manual proprietary to, to your company? Is that your manual for how you operate? It's proprietary to me. It's a general format. I'm part of the Motion Picture Pilots Association, which is a great group of folks that are active and retired uh, movie pilots. And it's how we all share information, build and support each other in our organization. And our movie manuals are basically uh, kind of a general format for what we use under that group or entity. Um, but it, they can be anything. I know a lot of people have different versions of it that are approved around the country. That's really interesting. So that's the guide that kind of gets you, gets, gets that agreement going between you and the FAA, aside from the specific waivers for the movie. It's, it's, it's kind of giving them comfort for how you operate with standard procedures, period. It is. And I'll give you something else too. So that's the half of my job is being an aerial coordinator. And sometimes I'm not even flying. Sometimes mm -hmm. my job is to be on the ground next to the director and I have a professional or more proficient pilot flying something that I need flown on camera. 
But the other half of my job is the fun part, and that's flying. And I'm a camera pilot, so I get to use some very cool camera platforms. Or sometimes I get to fly picture ships. Those are the ones that we actually see on camera. Um, we, we have this term, stunt pilot, that's kind of been around for a long time and follows us around. And, and while it's a cool term, it's actually so far from what we actually do. Typically, people hear stunt pilot, and that means somebody that's cranking and banking and doing crazy stuff, right? Taking risk. Well, there's everything in aviation is inherently risky. Some things are more risky than others. Here's what I always say to folks. That term stunt comes from, you know, a stunt fighter or a stunt man or woman. That's our job. We're part of the Screen Actors Guild Union. And when we're working in the motion picture and television industry under our union, we're considered stunt, stunt men, stunt women, stunt pilots. Uh, so that's how that term follows over. But it's so different from what you actually would think. We're so highly coordinated, choreographed, and planned for days, weeks, sometimes months. We're pretty risk averse, to be honest. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of the stuff we do is so planned. We know exactly where we're going to be, at what time we're going to be, how we're going to do it, exactly how low we're going to be. We rehearse, we crawl, walk, run, all those things. Typically, what we do on camera is is very far from a stunt. We're not we're not pushing out there hoping for the best. We it's like a test point from a test pilot. We know exactly where we're going to be and what our limits are and our stop points are. So it's pretty cool. But that is a, a Hollywood term that kind of comes with the job. It makes a lot of sense. And, and it, you know, in the term stunt pilot really invokes more of aerobatics or, or a show pilot or something yeah. like that. And even, even those guys are, are obviously flying things that they know exactly how it's going to end. There's no surprises. Exactly. No surprises. Yeah. And yours is another level beyond that. I, I think what, one of the things that fascinates me about it is the combination of that technical expertise and the safety and the organization with the artistic side, because I've, I've seen the footage. I mean, we'll talk uh, uh, about some of it in a minute with, with um, uh, like uh, the uh, movie Hawk that you've got and, and some of the others that, but the appearance is obviously meant to be something dramatic. Those shots that you get are not meant to look like everything's totally under control. That's right. And, and extremely safe and perfectly planned. The, uh, I love what I like to consider the art of camera movement. I absolutely love moving a camera gimbal attached to an aircraft around the sky or around another aircraft in ways that we've never seen before. I love pushing the envelope for what technology will allow me to do, what the aircraft will allow me to do, obviously in a safe manner. But there's nothing more gratifying to me in the aerial DPs who I work with. My, the main common one I work with is Michael Fitzmaurice. Then sitting down and watching dailies or playback or something or watching it on the big screen and going, I've never seen that before. Or having somebody tell us, that looks fake. That's the biggest compliment to somebody who does aerials for real. When somebody says, was that real? That, there's no way that was real. That's really cool, right? Because that when we're bordering on the fact that someone's like, I don't know how you would do that. That doesn't look real. That's pretty fun for us. That's amazing. A absolutely. Um, you mentioned that it all starts with storyboarding. And a lot of uh, the films that are, that are coming out, of course, you know, CGI has come a long way. Uh, and the work that you do is the real flying and the, air and the aircraft that are out there. Do you help early on in the project in, in what can be done for real so that we do more real flying and, and less CGI? Well, I think everybody listening to this would prefer, like you and I, that everything's real and there's no CGI, right? We, we love real practical flying on camera. That's what we live for. Uh, but some of it's not possible. There's rockets and gunfire and stuff like that. So and we can't endanger people to make a movie. Uh, to answer your question, it depends. If on a movie like Top Gun Maverick or Devotion, I'm hired with the aerial DP in both movies. That was Michael Fitzmaurice as well as David Knoll on Top Gun Maverick. We're hired early on in pre-production to help build the sequences. They want our brains to help them understand how to storytell those aviation assets. What can we do? And on Top Gun Maverick, it was, hey, every shot needs to be perfect, like a level of perfection we've never seen before. And everything needs to be dynamic, energetic, and and mind-blowing that was like the top gun maverick rule for every single shot in the movie um but we feel like we take that to every movie we work on so to answer your question sometimes we're just a hired gun for the day and we show up for a beauty shot of downtown la we brief 
we go fly, we do it, and we say goodbye. And sometimes we're on a movie for almost a year uh, because we're going to be involved in the pre-production, helping draw or work with the storyboard artist to figure out what that's going to be. And then how we're going to put that together, the mission planning, the budget planning, and then all shooting. And then at the end of the movie, we sometimes even work with the visual effects artist to make things look more realistic. So to answer your question, it varies. But my favorite, my personal favorite, is when I'm heavily involved in the creative side. I like that a lot. That makes a lot of sense. And of course, so, you know, the biggest thing on a lot of people's minds is take us a little bit behind the scenes on what it was like to work on Top Gun Maverick for the beginning, to work with Tom Cruise and someone experienced in flying and, uh, and, and what that, what that experience compared to other films was really like. That's a pinnacle movie. That's a, that's a dream come true. Pinch yourself every single day that you got to work on Top Gun Maverick. I was born in 1986, same year the first one came out. And I swear since I was a little baby, that thing was just on a repeat. I feel like I've seen that movie a thousand times. Uh, and it's actually the only thing that almost derailed me from the job I wanted to do. There was a moment that I wanted to be a naval aviator, just like Tom Cruise and fly F-14s. But I stayed the course. And in some weird turn of events, I got to work on the new Top Gun Maverick. So that was pretty cool. Um, to answer your question, there were times where I would literally get chills. I remember one day I finished briefing the actors and uh, we did our creative brief uh, with our management team, Paramount and Joe Kaczynski, Claudia Miranda and TC. And we would, we'd walk, they'd go to their PR shop. That's the parachute, you know, they get all their gear and everything on. And I walked out to the Mavjet and it was this beautiful crisp morning. And I'm standing next to the Mavjet and that thing just looks amazing. And out comes Tom uh, and his full getup. And I'd seen him in it before, but for some reason on that day, just walking past me to his airplane, that was Pete Maverick Mitchell in the flesh. Like I felt like I was in the movie, right? Like instant chills. Like I'll never forget the moment, the jet fumes I was smelling. Like I can hear the theme song playing in my head, but we had that all the time. You know, I think the entire crew, it didn't matter the camera assistants or the grips, you know, people would crank up the old Top Gun soundtrack and we would remind ourselves constantly how cool and special this is. And we knew that this movie was going to be something really special, but to get to work on it every day. It was a real treat. Was there, was there anything about kind of the way it was kicked off or some of the instructions or, or information that Tom gave you that, that comes to mind? I know you sent me a, uh, a, a picture here that's, that's showing you guys in a meeting. Um, so th this is uh, this is like a double wide, we call them lunch boxes, right? They're air conditioned. They're typically set up so crew can have their lunch in here. Uh, but this was our mobile briefing um, room, if you will. Uh, we were at Fallon, Nevada here, and we had one or a couple tables pushed in the middle. We had our stick models. We had our briefing cards, and we would sit there, and we'd always start with the same thing. We'd start with creative, and Joe Kaczynski, our wonderful director, would lead us on his inspirational notes for the day and what he wanted to obtain and notes from the previous day's photography that we'd watched. Tom Cruise would, would say his part. And by the way, Tom was involved in everything and he was kind of invaluable because he'd done this before on the original. He flew in the F-14s on the first movie. So he knew, he knew exactly how to help our aviators in this movie and our actors and what to give them. So he was instrumental. Um, but anyway, this is, we would do our creative, we would do our logistic talks about how we're going to go do that creative. And then we would end with safety. Uh, and my Naval aerial coordinator counterpart, Ferg, Brian Ferguson was always in there with me and I would sort of do the civilian part and he would do his uh, Naval aviation part since he was in charge of the Navy assets on the movie and off we would go fly. But that's how we figured out every single day what we were going to do. We'd do a briefing in the morning, usually lasted two hours. Then we would go fly for about an hour and a half debrief, watch all the footage. And then we would do it again in the afternoon because lighting is key and we want mm. that beautiful morning light or that beautiful afternoon light. But that's, we spent hours in those briefing rooms. I miss it. <laughs> was uh, there a, a theme or something about what he was trying to bring to yeah. that? I'm sorry. Yeah, you did ask that. Uh, so the one thing I think I profoundly remember is uh, when we gathered at, uh, let's see, Naval Air Station Lemoore, um, we were in a, a briefing room over there and we were just kicking it off. We were just getting started. And I don't remember word for word, but basically Tom kind of gathered some of the folks around uh, that were there on that unit, some of the naval aviation folks, so the pilots that were getting ready to go up. And he kicked it off kind of just by saying, guys, you know, this needs to be perfect. You know, we're at a disadvantage. We're making a sequel to a very historic, iconic movie, and we need to obtain 
this level of cinematic perfection that's never been seen before. Um, let's see here. I think I just had a screen failure. There we go. Sorry, guys. Um, can you hear me and see me? Oh, yes. Okay, cool. You disappeared for a quick second there. Um, but he basically said, this needs to obtain a level of perfection we've never seen before. And that all resonated with the crew, right? We all knew going into this, there was going to be no mediocrity. There was going to be no, that's great. Everything had to just blow our minds. Joe Kaczynski came out recently, right? And he said that we had shot 800 hours of aerial footage. Now my jaw kind of dropped when I heard that. And I knew we shot a lot between all the platforms and the ground air and everything and the internal cameras, 800 hours. And let me tell you, I've, seen pretty much all that footage there's amazing stuff in there there's just not enough time in top gun maverick to put it all in there movie would be very long so you know they cut it down and they use that one percent cinematic gold but that was that was the constant thing we heard all the time is everything had to be perfect and i love that wow what what aircraft were actually used on that uh in that movie uh so naval side obviously f-18 super hornets e's and f's uh, we had an E2, uh, might've been a C or D. I don't remember that we did some air to air photography with Theodore Roosevelt, very little F 35. We just see it in the opening sequence of the movie. Um, but it's mentioned from time to time. Um, so those are kind of the heroes of the movie. And then the, the background aircraft that we don't see when we watch the movie are the camera assets that we're flying. So, uh, I created, uh, an aircraft, uh, which is basically an L39 Albatross and we nicknamed it the Cinejet. Uh, and that's something I dreamt up maybe a year and a half before the movie, maybe two years before the movie. Uh, there's my, there's my hero shot. Huh? That's a wall shot. For sure. <laughs> I, I like that. I'll go back to that. I like hey, that, that. That's a good hero shot. <laughs> so focused. Somebody told me to like, look out in the distance and look cool and then look ridiculous, but uh, airplane <laughs> looks cool in the background. Um, but that's, that's kind of my little baby. I, uh, I needed a platform that was maneuverable and that can fly the shot over F1, the jet version we call the rush. Uh, and, and get images that we've never seen before and have stability and lens clarity that we've never seen before. Uh, and that's the platform we came up with. And I wouldn't have been able to build that platform had it not been for my great partners. And that's obviously, you can see the name on the side of the jet. That's a Patriot jet airplane. That's their spare. So we had jet seven and eight of the spare airplanes for the Patriots. Uh, and let me tell you, they're just such a good group of professionals. A lot of them are retired Blue Angels and Thunderbirds and my friend Randy Howell owns the team and, and leads the team. Uh, and he basically uh, allowed me to use his airplane and build this beautiful, cool camera platform that helped us make those images that we get to watch on the big screen. And for those of you that know the L39, you will know that that is not a powerful airplane. It's maneuverable. It's an energy management airplane. Uh, so we had to work pretty hard, especially with all the drag of that camera gimbal on there. Because uh, that's not a very powerful, fast jet. It is maneuverable and allowed us to get in places we've never been before. The other jet that I flew in the movie is the Phenom 300. Now, we all know that aircraft is a, uh, uh, like a business jet, a, a private jet uh, charter aircraft, if you will. Um, and my friend Jonathan Spano, uh, along with the company he's partnered with, Team 5, built this really cool business jet, this Phenom 300 camera jet. And that came along about a quarter of the way into the movie, became available to me. Um, and it was really nice because David Knoll and Mike Fitzmaurice, the two aerial DPs and I would basically look at a sequence and figure out what the right jet was, the right camera jet to tell any given sequence of that movie. Uh, and we had all these amazing platforms. We typically always had the L39 there. We had the Phenom 300 there. Uh, and we also had the helicopter platform, which is an AS350, uh, also known as an H125. Airbus uh, makes them now. It used to be American Eurocopter. Uh, and that is a great utility camera platform, highly maneuverable, great visibility. And we had those throughout the movie. Um, so between those three platforms, that's what you're watching on the big screen. Those images are coming from those three aircraft. Uh, and then obviously the perfect recipe, in my opinion, in Michael Fitzmaurice's opinion for an aviation movie, you got to have, uh, air to air. So I just gave you the three platforms we used for that. You got to have ground to air. Ground airs, all the big passes and flybys. That shows people how low we are, and we're creating dust and jet wash. Uh, you have to have internal and exterior mounted cameras because you have to let your audience go for a ride on an F-18. There's no better way to do it if they can't get in it. So um, Claudio Miranda, our DP, and, and uh, Dan Ming, his lead technician, they built this really cool array of cameras that were in the F-18. And then we also had external 
uh, cameras. So when you're in the movie and you're attached to the dorsal or the, the belly or the wing, you know, mounts, that's all real. Those are IMAX quality cameras mounted on those F-18s. And then, uh, let's see, I think I hit all, I think I hit all those, but that's, those are, that's the recipe for aviation storytelling. And I think that's how Top Gun Maverick did it so perfectly. Wow, that is epic. I mean, uh, uh, to, to understand really what goes into that. And the F-18s aren't just obviously something anyone does. So was this working with the Navy? I mean, how did... How did yeah, of course. They all had to be flown by uh, U.S. Naval aviators. And, and the fun part for us, uh, you know, the Navy knew, based off the first movie, that this was an incredible thing to be a part of, right? That first movie was one of their biggest, single biggest recruiting efforts. So really a different kind of Navy, I think, the way they, they wanted to work on the film. But then you have the accountability. And I don't think people realize this, that we didn't get anything for free. Paramount had to pay an arm and a leg for everything. I mean, we had to pay for every flight hour on that F-16. They had to pay money if they turned the carrier into the sun. Like, everything had to be paid for. We can't have our taxpayer dollars going to waste working on a movie. So the Navy came out well on this, right? They were compensated for all the assets and personnel that were used on the movie. And they get this amazing uh, movie that should help for recruitment for the next, you know, 20, 30 years or so. So, but uh, I digress. We got to work with a broad spectrum of naval aviators and this was pretty cool for us. We got to work with the real Top Gun pilots, which was a real treat out of Fallon, Nevada. They used to be in Miramar. Uh, but we also got to work with, with JOs and other squadrons and 122 out of Lemoore. Uh, or folks out of Whidbey Island. And, and let me tell you something, this kind of talks about the potency of the U.S. Navy. I got to take those naval aviators in different scenarios and into huge ice mountains and glaciers and down low through canyons. They're all incredible. Um, you know, I know our Top Gun instructors and everything, that's tip of the spear. Those are the best of the best. But let me tell you, I was thoroughly impressed with all of the naval aviators that flew on our movie. Uh, they all brought different skill sets to the table. And something pretty cool is production engaged them. We made them all feel comfortable to give ideas. Well, hey, guys, if you do this, if we do this cool control input on the F-18, it's going to squat and do this. Once you engage those folks, they're not just going out and doing a job and going home. They felt like they were part of the movie. And all of a sudden, we got a very different kind of enhanced pilot who was like very willing and able to help show us how an F-18 or how the ground crew or how anything could do better on the movie. So that was really fun. Wow, that is that is incredible. I, and you mentioned a, a number of different areas that you actually filmed because, of course, there's a lot of uh, ice and snow in the movie as well as being out at, at uh, simulating the Top Gun base. Where did where did you go? Uh, so it's pretty fun for us. We, we went to basically every naval base on the West Coast, just about all the way down from San Diego, Miramar, North Island, all the way up to Naval Air Station Whidbey in the Pacific Northwest. And by the way, that's a very beautiful Navy base. Uh, right up there with Miramar, I'd say. Uh, and then to, to things like uh, Naval Air Station Lemoore. And we spent tons of time uh, at Fallon, Nevada, which is a very cool place. And that's where Top Gun is based now and the aggressor squadrons. Uh, we spent time at China Lake. And obviously, that's a very big weapons development and test center. Uh, that's where we shot our Dark Star sequence. So uh, pretty unique and fun for us. Um, and then the final act of the movie, the, uh, the, you know, the bad guy base, if you will, that's Tahoe. That's South Lake Tahoe, which is pretty awesome. Really? Oh, yeah. That's the airport. And then, uh, you know, the final sequence of the movie, when it looks like we're in these this ice, massive vertical development, mountains and snow, peaks and stuff like that, that's actually the Pacific Northwest. That's in the Cascade Mountain Range. Uh, and I used to fly over that all the time when I did charter work and worked with Boeing doing air-to-air -air photography. But when you're down in there with the F-18s or flying a helicopter L-39, let me tell you, those things look like they don't belong in the United States. It, for me, it looks like something out of what you would see what the Swiss Alps would look like. Those things are incredible. And there's even a route called the Million Dollar Route. There's a military route through there. Uh, Naval Aviators nicknamed it that because it's the most breathtaking route that they fly. It's pretty cool. Wow, that's uh, that, that. Now I've got to like go out there and and add that to the list of places that you got to fly. If if you got to go fly places like that, I didn't realize that the entire thing was actually filmed uh, in the Western United States. That's that's pretty impressive. Yeah, you didn't even have to go up to Alaska. Nope, we didn't. 
Very cool. Um, I want to talk about platforms because in addition to the artwork, you mentioned a couple of times, you mentioned, of course, uh, with the Cinejet, um, but you have really broken some ground about taking and, and moving forward with the technology and the platforms that make these films possible um, without having to do CGI. And um, one of the things that, that I really like, I'm going to bring up a picture here is, that blows me away, is this, that you somehow managed to, to get a Blackhawk. <laughs> how yeah, how does that. one, before you even start, how does one get a Blackhawk? Well, you got to know some pretty cool people. And uh, we, uh, I'm lucky enough to be partnered with uh, my friend Alex Anduze uh, and our friends, uh, the Brown family. Um, and they uh, basically worked with the U.S. government on something called the BEST program. That's when the United States government says, hey, we're going to get new Hawks. And instead of scrapping the old ones, we can sell those to the civilian market because they're still worth something. Uh, it's a pretty great plan, actually. Government makes a little bit of money and helps them afford new aircraft, and civilians end up with hawks that could be used for firefighting or, you know, state municipalities in, or movie work in this case. So uh, I got to give a uh, tip my hat to my amazing partners who, uh, who got this helicopter from the BEST program and allowed me to stand it up as a production asset. So uh, typically back in the day, Hueys were the mainstay. You know, everybody's heard Hueys. In fact, I feel like every single helicopter, no matter what it is, has a Huey soundtrack or a Jet Ranger soundtrack to it. I don't know why they do that. It drives me crazy. But as the times uh, became more prevalent and people wanted to get more advanced and up with it, directors said, I don't want a Huey. I want everyone uses Hawks now. How do I get a Hawk? And before, you had to get DOD approval, Department of Defense approval with your script in order for the military to come work on your movie. And that sometimes is lengthy and sometimes if it doesn't have any benefit to the US military, you won't get approval. So we stood up what I call the movie Hawk and it uh, was the first UH-60 Blackhawk in the Southern California area, kind of the hub of production uh, to be available to the film and television and future film world. And we took an A model, as you can see here now, it's an Alpha Plus, it's got some bigger motors in it. But we're able to make it a slick, like a medevac bird, so nothing on it. Or we can throw a bunch of stuff on it and make it simulate a, like an M model or something a little bit more um, aggressive, if you will. Uh, we could put guns and rockets and missiles and little FLIR sensors on it and radomes and refueling probes. So it's this whole menu item. Um, and it's pretty fun. This helicopter lives a great life after it served our country valiantly, I'm sure. And it sits in a hangar and it gets waxed and taken care of. and and uh, lives a nice life going on movie sets and uh, serving on these movie roles. Now you also coordinate actual, you know, all the action scenes because everything we've talked about so far. When you talk, when you're talking about flying jets, you're you're t mainly talking about what they see outside and just a jet maneuvering, seeing in the cockpit, like you said, things like that. But helicopters, when they're in movies they're really doing things where you're seeing the actors and where people are coming, coming out, like in this case and repelling and or, or all sorts of things. Did this, did this, you know, take you to a different level or a different area of how you are coordinating things now, especially with this asset? I say it's about, it's the same methodology, really. Um, you know, the helicopters, the Hawk offered up some different things. You know, we can do fast roping and repelling and, uh, fries extraction, basically everything the military can do, we can pretty much do it with our helicopter. So we, you know, had to expand what we called our Bible of our movie manual and make sure that we covered all the basis for how this could be used on a set. And, uh, and, and we do that, but it's the same methodology. It's the same safety practices and it's the same excitement, if you will, for trying to use helicopters and see realistic things on screen. I told you before, for my team and the people listening that I work with, there's nothing better for us than watching movies and TV shows and seeing real aviation assets used properly on screen. I think the audience knows when it's real, like Top Gun Maverick, and I think they appreciate it, and we sure love doing it. Absolutely, and you get some amazing shots uh, as well, and this, this is pretty iconic. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a heading back home there. It's me in the, in the AS350A star. It looks like there's a shot over F1 on there and we're uh, basically headed back to base. It's pretty cool. 
Wow. Now you talked about putting on how you can convert the Blackhawk to all sorts of different configurations uh, and make it look like different versions of it or, or kind of a more attack versus rescue or something. Are those are those real components that get put on? How does how they're, does they're all inert? They're they're all photorealistic, but they're all inert. You know, we put M one thirty fours on there. Uh, sometimes we bring in armors that are Hollywood specific armors. Who bring in real M one thirty fours and we fire blanks. Let me tell you, that is extremely impressive when you're flying the Hawk and we shoot uh, blanks from the M one thirty fours. I think that's three thousand rounds a minute if I'm quoting that right. But it's uh, just the sound and feel which you feel in your chest when those things fire. So some of the stuff's real. Obviously, we're not firing actual rounds. Uh, but a lot of the stuff, you know, the rockets and the tubes and stuff like that, those are just inert movie props. I was, yeah, I was kind of wondering if they're uh, – certainly, I would, I would expect that they'd be mainly inert, but I wasn't sure if they were um, real military hardware that's been disabled in that way, as, as is done with a lot of things, or if they're actually mocked up. By you know, uh, by effects or, or oh, we companies. actually we have both. Sometimes it's ex-military and it's just been made to be inert in a movie prop. And sometimes they're just we don't have access to them and we build them. That makes sense, definitely. And and do you fly the Black Hawk? I do. I'm rated in the Hawk. Uh, I typically have uh, Alex Anduze, who's a uh, experimental test pilot and uh, the Sikorsky Grandmaster. I'd call him. He knows that helicopter so well. So he's my lead pilot for anything that helicopter does on camera. I'm a pretty inexperienced UH-60 driver. Uh, every once in a while, I get to share the cockpit with Alex. Uh, um, but he's he's my main source. And in fact, Alex is pretty cool. Most people love this. On the movie Devotion, Alex owns the oldest flying helicopter in the world, uh, I'm told. It's an H05S1. So it's an old Sikorsky and it actually has 700 plus documented missions in Korea in the Korean war. So we brought that onto devotion and we flew it on the movie. Glenn Powell actually flew inside of it. So we, uh, we utilize that helicopter. So that's also Alex Anduze. That's very, very cool. And you brought up devotion. I want to talk about that, that for anyone who hasn't already seen, go out there and look at the trailer for devotion because uh, you can't look at the trailer and not put the date of, I believe it's November 23rd on your calendar about when that's going to hit theaters. That looks like that's going to be an amazing film. That's all based on that true story out of uh, the Korean war with naval aviators. So uh, take me through that movie. Uh, sure. So obviously this is a true story about two naval aviators uh, during what they call America's Forgotten Wars. So there's not a lot of information. Well, there's a lot of information on it. It's just usually not talked about. Um, but our, uh, our men and women really went through some tough times. There's really tough conditions out there. Just, a, just not a very entire storyline, basically, but just a very tough situation. Uh, this movie is centered on these two naval aviators and the acts, the heroic acts that they did. Uh, and when you watch the movie, um, one thing I'd, I'd like to say we're very proud about is a lot of the aerials on this movie are real, but we're using 70 year old airplanes, Corsairs and MIGs and, uh, like that H 5 S one, that old Sikorsky helicopter. Uh, there's a really great book about this. If, if folks are out there, the book's fantastic. It's written by Adam Nakos, a good friend of mine. Uh, fantastic read. Um, black label media is the production company that decided to make this movie, uh, in association with Sony. Um, and when Mike Fitzmaurice and I were contacted by Black Label, they basically said, hey, we want to do this real. You know, we, we loved what you did with Top Gun Maverick. Can you coordinate this movie? Can you fly the camera assets? And can we do this for real? I think people love seeing real airplanes on camera. That was music to our ears. Uh, and absolutely, that was, a, that was a yes for us. So um, we went to work trying to figure out how to make that happen. And it was, uh, it was about pulling the right people in. Um, I had some pretty amazing aviators and warbird folks, uh, like Steve Hinton senior and junior, uh, and, uh, um, in the Ericsson aircraft company or collection, I brought in Mike Oliver and Jim Martinelli. So we, we brought in all these assets and we literally utilized them in the cascades in the winter time. So these 70 year old aircraft were operating in freezing temperatures and snow and ice is pretty wild. So, uh, I don't want to give anything away. I know it's a true story, but I can tell you that it's very different. Uh, than the big aviation movie that came out. It's, it's highly focused around these two naval aviators and what they did, their camaraderie, uh, and it's, it's awesome. I've seen it twice, and I like it better every time I see it. Wow. 
And, you know, devotion is, and also I won't give anything away here, but the, I think it, it, it brings together some, some really pivotal points in history. It has to do with the kind of integration of, uh, that, that was occurring in the U S Navy for the, um, uh, uh, for, uh, Navy, Naval aviation, um, and, uh, uh, and the challenges around that. And then also, of course, about such a pivotal time in aviation technology, because even what you mentioned there, you're going from Corsairs and MIGs in the same venues. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I mean, I think the way it was, uh, you know, I understood it is, you know, we were done with World War II and we weren't producing aircraft or technology. We weren't in a conflict at that point. So we were mothballing ships and aircraft and we were kind of slowing down, if you will. And then this conflict happened and our Corsairs and, and those type of aircraft got deployed out there. And, you know, there's Soviet air, you know, and Chinese MiGs out there that they ended up dogfighting with, which is pretty wild. And I think the U.S. Uh, sped up quick and, and kind of caught up in the jet age and, and really uh, evolved fast for that. But the initial, the initial fight, it was pretty, pretty interesting to see those type of aircraft fighting one another. Did this present any uh, different kind of technical challenges when you're dealing with uh, aircraft that fly at kind of such different speeds, I would imagine, between when you're, you're, you're dealing in the, in the exact same shots with jet aircraft and piston aircraft? from World Yeah, War but that's, it's actually great because it's a, a bit of a story point, right, is uh, the Corsairs had a bit of an advantage that they could fly slower and lower and maneuver, maneuver harder, uh, and that's kind of kind of an interesting play on it you know the very different aircraft so when we shot that that's exactly how we shot it you know the MiGs can't fly as slow as the Corsairs but they're also more high performance so it, it makes for some unique aerial storytelling and uh, luckily enough we had a pretty incredible storyteller our director J.D. Dillard kind of led led that movie and all the aerial sequences and then the D, the DP of the movie was Eric Messerschmitt just another incredible DP but those are kind of our bosses on the movie that tell us the look and feel and how they want everything to be and then we figure out how to make it so that's a really interesting point that you brought up because I've never considered that when we when you look at and you read about transitions in in technology in in warfare and in aviation it's it's usually presented as one being radically better than the next that all of a sudden you're outclassed you don't usually hear that that kind of secondary story of, well, except the other aircraft had advantages by being slower or more maneuverable or things like that. That may be the first time I've heard that. Well, you got to use what you got. And I think that's what they did. You know, they figured out what they can do to be effective and, and win battles. And you kind of have to know the weaknesses of the other aircraft, especially if it's superior. That, that makes certainly uh, makes a lot of sense. So for anyone out there, devotion is definitely something that you're going to want to get out there uh, and see. Um, out of this enormous uh, Netflix catalog of films and things that you've done, other than the ones that we've kind of talked about right here, any, any things that kind of jump out at you, whether it was maybe the first one that you did or something else that, uh, that really has, a, has kind of a special memory for you? Uh, you know, one thing uh, that I've done a lot of in my career and people don't know about is uh, I've shot a lot of airline commercials and I've shot a lot of Department of Defense aircraft for stock, stock or photography and uh, and manufacturers, Boeing and Gulfstream and Embraer. Uh, and that's kind of how I built my experience, flying camera and flying camera jets and camera helicopters around other aircraft. All of that experience put towards these movies like Devotion and Top Gun Maverick. But one of my favorite experiences was being hired by Northrop Grumman to do the new footage or updated footage of the B-2 bomber. And I remember I got flown out to Whiteman uh, Air Force Base where they're based, and I had to go through some security training, and I had to sit down, and they briefed me on some formation techniques because it's a very non-standard aircraft to fly with. There's no vertical surfaces, so it can get a little interesting figuring out how close you are, and people tend to tighten up when you're on the wing. And then when that thing turns into you, it just gets massive because the airplane's huge. Uh, so that was very fun. And I remember flying the Wolf earlier 25 on that. And I had an armed guard sitting right behind me with a loaded gun. And his job was to make sure nobody took pictures. And when we landed, I couldn't open the door until he grabbed all the media and checked phones and put things in a locked bag and sealed it and said, all right, we'll see you later. And he left. And we had no idea where that footage was going. But that was very special because uh, I think it's pretty rare for a civilian to get to fly out that aircraft. And it is incredible when you're up close to it. Wow. 
that must I, I can as you were describing that that makes so much sense if you're you're kind of tight on the wing of something like a b2 and then when that thing banks that, that that's got <laughs> it's wild it's it's would. i mean I, I would form up uh and we'd be getting shots of it and it's 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 huge but it's also pretty small when you're next to it right it's just a sliver in the sky uh it's amazing how that airplane looks and that airplane gets huge when it you know rolls into you or turns into you or something you can kind of get a sense for how big it is so uh what they said was absolutely true is you'll end up tightening up and not really getting very good depth perception because there's no vertical surfaces really to reference wow the uh commercial work that you've done also for airlines and things like that is is are there certain types of shots or what, how did you learn kind of how to do those? It's almost seems to me anytime that there's a shot of a, in an airline commercial, it's almost like I know exactly what the shot's going to look like, you know, a certain, cert, certain uh, angle that maybe was started years ago with United or something that, that there's was the hero angles. There's the little menu item, right. That, that we got to get the, the, all the branding and the logo stuff. You know, one of my idols, Clay Lacey, did that work for years and years and did it incredibly well among other things he's accomplished in his career. Uh, and Wolf Air was essentially kind of a competitor to clay. And I went to work working for Wolf and then has, as Lacey sort of retired and spooled down, uh, I got very busy taking over that line of work, but clay was always a mentor and a hero of mine. Uh, and it felt really cool to be going to do the type of work he did. But to answer your question, yeah, we, we go on an airline shoot and we sit down for the creative brief. And they also know we, I do movie work and stuff like that. And they give you their menu list of we got to shoot our logo and we got to shoot our brand and we want to show the new winglets on this and the new paint scheme here. And you get all that stuff. And then it was always fun for me and the aerial DP to try to get new things that were different. So one of the most important things that happened while doing that type of work is I got hooked up with a gentleman named Thomas McMurtry. He was an experimental test pilot, uh, even worked for NASA. Um, and he ran that program with the Lear and he took me under his wing and he gave me everything that a civilian aviator would never get. I learned everything about military style briefing and debriefing. I learned about risk assessment. I learned about non-standard formations, dissimilar formations. I learned about night formation and we did IMC formation, just wild stuff. Usually a civilian would never be uh, showing or experienced to. So I have him and he's no longer with us. He passed, but he gave me so much information and so much experience uh and i think uh, i have tom uh to thank for that in my work on top gun maverick and devotion and working with the u.s military is a testament to what he taught me so huge tip of the hat to him wow well kevin i just want to say thank you so so much for taking time to join us here on social flight live this has been fascinating i have learned a, a ton and i I'll tell you, I, I just could keep going and going all night long asking you questions and learning what it's like to be behind the scenes. But it has changed the way that I'm going to view aerial scenes in movies moving forward. And I have, I think, a greater appreciation for it. And, and we wouldn't have films like this done in the way they are um, if it weren't for folks and especially you in particular uh, in this business. So. Um, just thank you so much for taking time here on Social Flight Live to uh, help share that with the rest of us. It's been an honor to be on here. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And have a wonderful night. Me too. Thank you, Kevin. And to all of you, thank you so much for joining us again here on Social Flight Live, taking time out of your evening to spend with us to share such remarkable individuals in general aviation. We are here to support GA and all of you and appreciate your time. We will be back next Tuesday, October 11th with Doug Evnick of Tannis. We're gonna learn about engine preheating, everything that goes into preparing your aircraft for winter to keep you flying, keep you proficient and keep your aircraft as healthy as possible. And then the following week on October 18th, we are off because we're at NBAA. I know Kevin's gonna be there as well. And uh, we'll see if we can get a few videos uh, produced out there and share what it's like to be on the ground in Orlando for NBAA 2022. And then we're back here on Tuesday, October 25th with Mike Bush is back. And we are gonna talk about how to protect you from being stranded when you're traveling and you're away and also what to do if that happens because there's other decisions that you can make to get home get back to your regular shop and mechanic and uh, that and many other things we'll cover 
with uh, one of my favorite individuals, Mike Bush. Until next time, thank you so much again for joining us here on Social Flight Live. And I wish you all blue skies. Thank you.